seated. We made it. A lot of changes on the fly this morning, but thank you for your patience and participation that we can honor the Lord with our lips. There's nothing greater. There's nothing greater than singing praises to the Most High God. Triune, eternal, immortal, invisible, God only wise. We want to continue this week in our text in Zephaniah 2. And Zephaniah 2, we began uh, verses 1 through 15. We walked through a couple of points, and I'll break those down again for us here in just a moment. But I want to remind you that uh, Zephaniah, in this short book, focuses on the day of the Lord. Not a whole lot of details, not a whole lot of reasons, but focuses on the day of the Lord as the urgent call to repentance, not only among the people of God, but also the nations that surround the people of Judah. You recall that this is the days of Josiah, the king of Judah, uh, 625 B.C., maybe a little earlier than that. And Zephaniah is preaching just before the days when Jeremiah would come. And Jeremiah would preach all the way into the days of captivity in Babylon. So we know what's coming they are only hearing the preaching of God's word to uh, anticipate this invasion from Babylon. And Zephaniah uses such wonderful pictures, uh, word pictures. He uses pictures from the history of Israel to define how God's judgment will fall on them and will fall on the nations. Again, he's declaring the urgency of turning to God as we know from the full revelation of Scripture through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who will be revealed in power, in might, dealing out retribution, as it says, 2 Thessalonians, to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. So the theme this, this week and last week as we're finishing the text Even with the great and terrible day of the Lord looming, God welcomes the repentant by his grace. Even with the great and terrible day of the Lord looming, God welcomes the repentant by his grace. And we talked about the one way of deliverance. And he prescribes that for the people of Israel in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. And we called that a welcome. A welcome. So God is like, hey, this is what's going on here. Y'all look just like the world. I have to make sure that my people are holy. You are welcome to seek me. And remember, that seeking is not some sort of generic spirituality, like, ah, oh, we'll start dealing with the, the, the things of God and eternity and morality and meaning of life. Like, why do I exist? That's not like just... I will deal with that later. That's not that kind of seeking. That's not dabbling in a bunch of stuff. No, this is seeking the Lord, which they would have understood very specifically as worshiping the Lord, obeying the Lord. That is how you seek him. And so it defined that seeking the Lord in terms of seeking righteousness and seeking humility. 
Those don't seem to go together, though. If you really think about it, if you seek righteousness on your own, then you will be able to boast in your own righteousness. But if you seek the righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ imputed to you, then the only thing you can do about that righteousness is humbly thank God. So you seek righteousness and you seek humility. This is what it means to seek God. He says, you are welcome to seek me, to know me through my son. And then he gives, as we described, that was the only way, the one way of deliverance. Now he turns to four ways of lasting judgment, the first of which was woe, verses four through seven. We talked through the people of Philistia, and this is the people to the west. And as we're going to see these next three ways of lasting judgment, we see Judah, okay, and then I'll turn it around so your map is, is you looking at the map, all right? Philistia to the, to the west, and now he's going he's gonna to move to the east and balance that out. And then he's going to move to the south and talk about Cush. And then he's going to the north to talk about Assyria. And all this shows us with the compass the four corners of the earth that God is going to reach with his outstretched judging hand. It's a terrifying thing to think about. The ends of the earth will be accountable to God. But what does this say to Judah? A people who in these days, they carry on in the spirituality outwardly of their their historical religion, yet inwardly they are just like the surrounding nations. And so the response for them and Zephaniah's message here is if God is willing to judge these people so severely, then what would he do to you who look just like them? And so the call again is to repentance. So to the west there was woe. Now we continue in our text. We want to turn to the east, verses 8 through 11, and see waste. He says, you will be a waste. Let's read verses 8 through 11, and then we'll read more as we go. Zephaniah 2, verse 8. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish. He will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. Now that we're getting into it, I suppose I'll lead us in prayer. Father, help us. By your spirit to understand your word, which ultimately points us to Jesus. 
So, Father, in this triune act right now, speak that we may hear and be transformed according to your wondrous power. Let us see Jesus as the only Savior, the most beautiful sight by faith. Father, be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So to the people of the east, to Moab, to Ammon, waste. Now the people to the east, these two groups are across the Jordan River. So you know something about the history of the Jordan River. You can put things in place. Moab is a plateau overlooking the Dead Sea. And it's about 3,000 feet above sea level. But you know the Dead Sea is below sea level. So the plateau is about 4,300 feet above the Dead Sea. Now this is where Moses got to see the promised land. And then Joshua got to lead the people into the promised land. The Ammonites are just north of Moab. And they were an autonomous people until about 580 B.C. And you know what happened with Babylon coming. They developed a history of territorial-driven evil plots and threats and insults against Judah, Moab, and Ammon. If you look and see in Obadiah, some of y'all remember as we walked through the book of Obadiah several years ago. You remember Obadiah's prophecies against the people of Edom. Those are Esau's descendants. His prophecies against the people of Edom were because they took advantage of the people of Judah from the cliffs and the rocks when the people of Judah were trying to escape. Again, this is during the Babylonian exile. They're trying to escape Babylon and the people of Edom attacked them and took their stuff. They robbed the people of God. And so they got the judgment through Obadiah. You know, you can look at modern day examples and see the kind of territorial issues that went on in this day. You look and see not only in Israel, but major nations. You can see in the expansion of the West. Need I remind you that a few hundred years ago, this was not the land of our ancestors. You can look at your neighbor's disputes about property lines and fences to get a glimpse of the kind of conflict that went between these people, between Moab, Ammon, and the people of Judah. When it comes down to it, Moab and Ammon sought to steal from Judah, but to despise God's people is to despise God himself. It ought to be a great comfort to you, believer, that God identifies with his people in such a way. Do you remember what happened when Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, do you remember what happened when Saul was persecuting Christians? On that road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him, blinds him, and what does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Let it be a comfort to you, believer, that when anything comes against you, God takes it personally. He even uses words in this passage 
the God of Israel. He says, my people, you're doing this to my people. Roberts, the commentator, says, the Lord is still laying claim to his whole people and to all the territory he had once allotted them. But there's another layer to this issue, okay? So they're fighting over land. There's another layer to the issue, just like Edom, okay? Edom, Esau, there's relation there, isn't there? There's some family ties. We claim the same heritage, right? So Edom felt like they had some right to the land. Well, guess what happens here? It's the same issue. These people, Moab and Ammon, trace their heritage back to Abraham through his nephew, Lot. Now, what I love about the Bible, one of the things that's enjoyable about the Bible is that it reminds us that we are utterly sinful human beings, not just in the last 20, 30, 40 years, but it reminds us that we have been sinful since the fall, utterly depraved. What we have here in the story of Lot and Moab and Ammon is a story that would make uh, Jerry Springer and Mari Povich blush. See, we, we look at things like that and we say, oh, the degeneration of humanity. Oh, let's go back a little bit, okay? Lot. Maybe you remember that Lot's daughters, Lot's daughters, who wanted to preserve their father's lineage after you know what happened to his wife. To preserve his lineage, they found him in a, a, a drunken stupor. And I'll use the nice Bible language. One after the other, they lay with him. Which gave birth to Moab and Ammon. Genesis 19, 29 through 38. Now, I don't, I don't even need to start asking you questions about your family relations, but it's not going to come anywhere close, I'm guessing, to what we have in this situation. Not only are these neighbors fighting over land, these neighbors are all claiming the same heritage. God pronounces the consequences for them. He says right here, you'll be destroyed, you will be a waste like Sodom and Gomorrah in Abraham's day, filled with nettles and salt pits. To get that idea, okay, the south end of the Dead Sea, there would be water that, that flowed and then it would dry up or evaporate, essentially, leaving layers of salt behind, which would make the land completely barren and unproductive. But get this. Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot escaped the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, only to produce these peoples who would not escape the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You know, it's crazy. We read, as Peter writes, he says, and God saved a righteous lot. If, if we can say anything about Lot being righteous, we know that his righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus, just like Abraham. Lot, we could say, is one of those that managed to enjoy salvation by the skin of his teeth. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't lead his family well. He may be saved, but his descendants are destined for Sodom and Gomorrah all the more. So the Lord uses language here, Lord of hosts, Lord Almighty, strong language about God. He commands, essentially, commands the events that brings the rescue for his people as well as an in-kind judgment against his people's enemies. Matyar writes here, he says, look at Zechariah 2.8. This is what happens to the people who oppose God's people. He says, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. This is how much God cares for his people to preserve his people. But I want you to notice that there is there's, there's fierceness, as we see in this message. There's fierceness here, but it's immensely hopeful. And you say, how? Well... If you look at verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. But then he continues and says, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Moab and Ammon's pride ends up stripping them of everything, and they'll watch the destruction of their gods but they'll bow down. It says they'll bow down to the one true God. To the Israelite, to the Jew, this would be scandalous. How could these people become worshipers of God? Not only that, they don't have to worship the people where we do in the temple they're going to worship him each in their own place. Each in its place. Is this possible? I think in this we get to see a bit of the foreshadowing of people from the nations being welcomed in just like the people of Israel through repentance and faith. Their warning is waste. Thirdly, we see in the next people, verse 12, the Cushites, they'll be wiped out. Wiped out. He says in verse 12, 
He says, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. One verse given to Cush. But you see what's happening. Cush moves the compass now south to what we would know as modern-day Ethiopia and Sudan. Cush was under the reign of Egypt in its most powerful, dominant days. And it takes attention to the most remote nations so as to make the words against Jerusalem all the more piercing that will follow in the next chapter. So this would take the people of God to the farthest land that they would know about, the Cush, the Cushites. This is foreign. For us, this is the international mission field. If you want some perspective, God is sovereign over all. And all nations are accountable to him. The ends of the earth, the corners of the earth will not escape judgment. Now it's fitting that in our Tuesday Bible study this week, and I totally did not plan this, we had a little discussion about these nations, these these unreached, unengaged people groups we don't have interaction with on any kind of basis. The question comes up, okay, well, if Cush knows so little about God and they're so primitive and they've been the subject of of oppressions and uh, Egyptian rule, how could God hold them accountable if they don't know what he requires? How How could God hold them accountable How could they be objects of wrath and judgment if they don't know what he requires? I want to take you to Romans 1, give you an explanation. Hopefully for some this will be good review. Romans 1, 18 through 23. I'm going to read it on the screen, okay? So keep up with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Do you see what's happening? All nations have the evidence of the created order around them. There is that that illustration that you've heard me use numerous times. When you see that beautiful painting on the wall, you don't think, oh, 
you beautiful painting. How did you get there all by yourself? No. You say, who made you? You hear a beautiful song and you think, oh, I need to know the writer. I need to know the composer, the musician. I need to know them because they are behind the beauty. You see, all nations are accountable to God because they have the revelation of God, the general revelation of God that shows them there is one to whom I am accountable. And it's certainly not the tree. It's certainly not the animal. There is a creator God. So the most remote people in every corner of the earth have all the signposts that point to the creator God, yet in their suppression of the truth, they exchange the worship of God for the worship of created things. So it's a sobering thought to consider that unreached, unengaged peoples who have no gospel access and no Bible access will be objects of eternal wrath. This is exactly why we have a mission to accomplish, church. This is why we've been commanded to make disciples of all nations. Of course, someone will ask, how could God punish them in hell when they've not heard the gospel? What do we say to that? Hypothetically, okay, if it were true, that God will spare them because they haven't heard the gospel, okay? Hypothetically, if that were true, that they're off the hook, then what should our mission strategy be? If there's anything in you, believer, that thinks that this is their future, then shut your Bible, burn it, never speak of Jesus again. Do your best to shut down every radio program, every preacher of the gospel, every missionary, make them all stop so that we can make sure they get to heaven. And you automatically see the problem herein. It shows us, first off, a couple of takeaways if you want to make notes. Takeaways I gave these folks on Tuesday. People don't end up in hell because they didn't hear the gospel. People end up in hell because they're sinners. Now, if you want to talk about the severity of punishment, I think there's biblical warrant. The servant who 
knows his master's will and doesn't do it. He will get a severe beating, Luke 12, 47. The servant who doesn't know his master's will and still doesn't do it, he gets a light beating, but a beating nonetheless. There may be some differences in the severity of punishment for those who hear the gospel and scoff at it versus those who never hear the gospel and yet are still accountable for their sin. People end up in hell because they're sinners. We need to understand that. Secondly, second takeaway, we need to reorient our worldview so that we're asking the right questions. If any question begins with, how could God, you can almost bet that the person asking the question has the entire universe centered around man. How could God, because we're the ones who are the greatest, we're the reason everything exists. In fact, most people, if they're honest, I'm the reason everything exists. We have a worldview that has man right at the center so that anything that threatens our own understanding, our own human wisdom, our own future, our own safety, anything that threatens that we want to cast out, we want to question at the very least. So if it begins with, how could God, you're probably on the wrong track Instead of asking the question, how could God punish these people in hell? We need to ask the question, how could God save anyone? How could God save a single soul? Being who he is, holy and righteous. But we praise God that his holiness and his righteousness also come with his patience and his grace. You know, commentators, they look at this verse 12, the Cushites, and they try to find all these reasons why he would mention the Cushites here. One commentator or one commentary, two writers, Barker and Bailey, you heard me mention them last week. They said at the very least, it's just balancing out the compass. But it, it reminds us that the most remote people are accountable to God. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. No reason, no reason given. You're going to be slain by my sword. That's what God says. God's judgment will fall on this militaristic people, as we know from history, this idolatrous people, people devoted to living contrary to the ways of God. And God is just in judging them for their sin. Yet, and I don't want to spoil the ending for you, Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. And in this section, God is talking about his saving reach. 
Verse 10, what does it say? From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. These people earned God's judgment, yet God is gracious in heaven that there's not already in the new creation there will be a Cushite gladly worshiping the sovereign God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the call of Zephaniah. Apart from salvation in Jesus, you will be wiped out, slain by the sword. And then we get to our final. Our final way of lasting judgment, it is wilderness, 13 to 15. I mentioned this morning to some folks, I said, these passages are so difficult to preach. How do you not preach like just some history about some nations and then talk about the gospel? That would be the easy way out. But we see this wilderness that will become of the Assyrians, verses 13 through 15, follow with me. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes her hisses and shakes his fist. Assyria completes the compass to the north. It's a fitting climax to the pronouncements of judgment because Assyria, just in the years following this prophecy, the Assyrian empire fell to its enemies. But even that was not the end of this prophetic witness. They will endure the fulfillment of the day of the Lord when Christ returns. Nineveh, it says, Assyria's most well-known city, known for its wealth, its security. Barker and Bailey tell us that the Assyrian army brought goods to the city of Nineveh for generations. So Assyria was so powerful and at the same time so cruel to their enemies that Nahum writes that people will clap their hands at their downfall. Their attitude was that of absolute power as we read from verse 15, I am and there is no one else. It kind of makes us think about those verses where God says, I am the Lord God. Aside from me, there is no other God. They are claiming the status of what we said earlier. I am my own king. I am my own ruler. I control it. 
I am God. This was their confession, but their future was a dry waste as desert. They would become a desert wilderness. And it's an ironic judgment since Assyria, being on the Tigris River, had unlimited water supply. Turned on Siri. Did I say Assyria and that did it? (laughs) Nice. I got to keep that in mind. But it's ironic, okay? God seems in these ways to tailor his judgments to the very things that lead people to turn away from him. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever had that in your life? It seems God is sort of hitting you where it hurts. And maybe that's what happened to you when you came to faith in Jesus. God began to show you the emptiness of the things in which you try to find value and satisfaction, lasting joy. He hits you where it hurts and he strips it from you in hopes that you will turn to him, the true source of meaning, of joy, satisfaction. God's judgments consistently seem to affect the environment as well. As commentators say, because God intends to show that the blessings of life come from his gracious outstretched hand. And now, as it says in these verses, he will stretch out his hand in judgment. You see the descriptions of wilderness, a huge city with 100-foot walls, 1,500 towers, palaces with columns, ornate with cedar woodwork. Now it's all overturned and a lodging place for animals. The promise of destruction came long ago, however. In the days of Isaiah, when God used the Assyrian Empire to pour out his remedial judgment on his own people in Israel. You remember in 744, when Israel became the subjects of the Assyrian government. In this, they became arrogant in their success, in their riches, in their security. And so as as O. Palmer Robertson writes, he says, they exalted themselves to the highest heaven. Again, I am. There's no one else. So he says, they must be brought to the lowest hell. Wilderness. The announcements of judgment on all nations surrounding Judah to the four corners of the earth demonstrate God's desire for repentance and full submission to Him. And if He will do this to the nations, then what does it mean for the people who are indistinguishable from the world yet claim His covenant? The Lord God does not mess around when it comes to the holiness of his people. He is serious. He is patient, however, and he is gracious. But he'll not compromise his own character for a stubborn and stiff-necked people. His desire is that we know him in this covenant relationship that he established and he'll fulfill. So we turn to him. In repentance and faith. You know, the hints of salvation to the nations also serve the people of God. If God is also willing to reach 
to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, to save souls, then we who are in covenant with him have all the more reason to seek the Lord, to seek righteousness, to seek humility. And so Barker and Bailey turn to the words of Octomeyer at this point. Here's what Octomeyer says. Follow with me. It's, it's fairly long. It says, the word. The word here of Zephaniah. And the word in the rest of the scriptures, the word made flesh in Jesus Christ stands against us and against our sinful pride. It will now and always so stand if we ignore it or reject it or think it a word intended only for someone else. And what a a terrible pit that would be, he says. For the word of the Lord throughout the Bible is a word intended to be for us and not against us. A word intended to restore our life and lead us into quiet pastures and to allow us to lie down at evening time in peace and security. Therefore, he says, seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. There is one way of salvation as we come to a conclusion in which God welcomes all who believe. A narrow way unto life that few find. And the question is, would that be you? There are plenty of lanes on the broad road to destruction. And get this, people walk their own way (laughs) imagining that they are unique that they're expressing themselves only to end up being a recycled and utterly predictable story of prideful rebellion. But there's nothing new under the sun. Your story, sinner, has been told over and over again with souls undergoing the torment of hell currently. It's a boring story, honestly. But you know what happens? There's nothing new under the sun, S-U-N. But under the sun, S-O-N, all things will be made new. Would you be made new by faith in Jesus? Maybe today you believe, but you discover from the word that you do not cherish your own knowledge of God, that you devalue your salvation by the way you live, which looks like the world. The same old story. Are you comfortable going in the ways of the world, muddling your so-called worship of God with the pursuits of the flesh. I know for one, Cedar View, we cannot. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to give my best effort to make sure that we will not be those people. May we seek the Lord. May we seek righteousness. 
may we seek humility. And may we enjoy God's preservation of his remnant of people all to his own glorious name. This morning, you may respond. Kyle will be down front to receive you as we sing. Let's pray. We delight in your word. We delight in the good news of Jesus. And as I was talking with a brother earlier, the good news is so good because it comes in light of very, very bad news that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that the righteous God is outpouring his wrath against sin. We're thankful, Father, that you did this for those who believe. Father, you did this in the Son, Jesus. Let us find him as our Savior. Find in him our eternal salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.